The official Spanish name for the site is the Isle of the Pelicans, although nobody knows it by that name. It's best known as Alcatraz, one of the most escape-proof prisons in the world. From 1933 to 1963, it served as a federal prison, and during that time, 26 prisoners tried to escape. Only five succeeded, although no one knows for sure if they survived the cold waters of San Francisco Bay or not. Alcatraz boasted high walls, double locked doors, machine guns in the hands of the guards, and a staff that could not be bribed. It was built to house only the hardest criminals, those who caused problems elsewhere. Certainly you know some of the names. Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, Whitey Bulger, and the Birdman of Alcatraz, to name just a few. And by the way, today Alcatraz is a tourist attraction. My guess is some of you have actually visited there. The world's worst prison, however, is not Devil's Island, as Alcatraz is sometimes called, for that place can only confine the body. The prison Jesus talked about in our parable today shackles the inner man. And sad to say, we put ourselves in it. What is this place? It is the prison of resentment. It is the dungeon of an unforgiving spirit. So about 18 months ago, I was given a book by one of my favorite authors. The book is called The Freedom Factor, written by Bruce Wilkinson. I liked it immediately as I read quickly through it, but I wasn't 100% convinced of one of the things that he taught about forgiveness. I'd simply never heard about it or thought deeply about it before. So I've been sort of studying and digesting this book since then, and today I'm ready to share this shocking revelation about forgiveness with you. So this might be a bit of a new thought for some of you. I want to prepare you for that. Forgiveness, however, is not a new thought. It's a crucial issue in the Christian life. This is super important for every one of us. I've discovered that personally, and I've seen that over the last 35 years of pastoral counseling. Forgive him? Are you kidding? After what he's done to me, I don't think I could ever forgive him. And I think if you're like me, you can think back through your life on different scenarios similar to that. One of the ones that comes to my mind immediately was when I was a seminary student in Dallas, Texas, and I had a swimming pool business, and one of the clients I worked for owned a small apartment complex. He was getting ready, I learned later, to sell this apartment complex, and he kept calling me to make sure that the swimming pool looked perfect, and he'd come, and he'd call me to come and fix this and fix that so it would look good for the clients that, that uh, were looking to buy it. Well, in the end, he didn't pay me for all of the work I did. I... I lost probably a couple of thousand dollars, both in time and parts, that I had bought for that swimming pool. It was one of the first times I remember really seriously considering revenge. Uh, don't look at me like that. I'm sure you have to. <laughs> whether it's with a child or a parent, whether it's a sibling or a friend or someone you hardly know, that man I'd never even met. Whether it's a spouse or someone in a position of authority in your life, forgiveness is a pivotal issue and every single one of us deals with it. The tragedy of all this is the bondage people find themselves in when they fail to forgive, when they hold on to resentment. 
This is exactly the issue Jesus addressed one day when he was with his disciples. In fact, he told them a parable that has become quite famous. And the best way to understand the parable of the unforgiving servant is to consider it from three different perspectives. Its setting, its meaning, and most importantly, its application or how we live out this teaching. So let's begin with the setting of the parable. And if you haven't already, please find your sermon notes Either open them up on your app or take them out of your bulletin. As we look at the setting of the parable, Jesus loved to teach some of his deepest spiritual truths through stories. A parable is a fictional story rooted in real life that teaches an important truth. And one day, Jesus told this story to drive home the reason that we need to forgive those who hurt us. And the reason is not what we might think. It began when Peter came to the Lord with the question. So let's pick it up at Matthew 18, 21. If you haven't already, please open your Bible as well. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we desire to understand your truth about forgiveness. We need to understand it. And so, God, we pray today that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us and that you would help us to examine our own hearts. Lord, we want to live out forgiveness like you do. We don't want to experience the bondage of resentment or pain or bitterness. We want your freedom in our lives. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To comprehend this parable, we need to understand four things from the outset. Number one is this. Christ was talking about forgiveness, not salvation. Not that initial step of salvation, but forgiveness going through life. The king in the story is not a picture of how God gives us salvation, for God does not forgive one day and then condemn the next. Salvation is a once-for-all experience that doesn't change, even though our enjoyment of it may change day to day. John MacArthur summarizes this parable like this. I quote, This pictures severe discipline, not final condemnation. So the context is not our eternal destiny. It's God's discipline if we fail to forgive. Second, Christ was primarily talking about forgiving believers. Peter asked about forgiving his brother. We just read that. Uh, That's verse 21. Jesus re-emphasized forgiving a brother when we get down to the end of the parable. Note, Note that in verse 35. So this is about relational reconciliation between people and primarily within the family of God. Now, it's fair to say we can apply the principles beyond just forgiving fellow believers. Jesus made that clear elsewhere. But here, the context is fellow Christians specifically in view. Third, the punishment is here and now. It's not in the future. This is not about when we, after we die. It's about what happens here on earth. And we need to be very clear that that is the case. What happens if we hold on to resentment and bitterness What happens when we fail to forgive? One of the reasons I want to make that clear is that 
The Roman Catholic Church uses this parable to support the doctrine of purgatory. Verse 34 is used as a proof text for purgatory because of the phrase, until he should pay all his debt. There's numerous problems with that, which we don't have time to get into today. Let me just say a much better interpretation of the parable is that it's about suffering here in this life when we fail to forgive. And fourth, the question being answered is what kind of forgiveness is required of a true Christian? Why, in fact, should I forgive without limit? As I've often taught you, you can't make a parable walk on all fours. Typically, a parable has one main lesson, and to understand that lesson, we need to discover the question that it was given to answer. And I believe the broad umbrella question behind this parable is what kind of forgiveness does Christ require of his children? Specifically, the question is why should I forgive without limit? Why? And I get that from the response of Jesus to Peter in verse 22. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or 77 times, depending on what translation. You see, Peter thought that he was being very generous in offering to forgive up to seven times. You might think to yourself, well, that's not all that many times, seven times. But if you knew Peter's day, you would have been impressed with this offer. The scribes and the Pharisees taught that if a person sins against you, it's your obligation to forgive them twice. If he sins against you a third time, go ahead and zap him. (laughs) My paraphrase, all right? Okay, well... Peter tripled their limit of forgiving and added one for good measure. But Jesus' response was, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Let me be clear. Jesus was not saying to count up the number of times you forgive, and when you hit that magic number, then you could stop. He wasn't setting a limit, but precisely the opposite. He's saying, it's our responsibility to forgive without limit. You see, 70 times 7 or even 77 times, those are both Jewish idioms for limitless, unending forgiveness in this case. So why didn't Jesus give a limit that we could use about how much to forgive? Probably because most of us would start counting. I think that's the answer. All right? Listen, Peter raised a question we can all deal with. As long as you live and as long as I live, we are going to be dealing with forgiveness. We'll be offended by others, and we will offend other people ourselves. That's just part of life. And the point is, Jesus expects us to forgive without limit. But that's not sufficient to teach the lesson. That's the truth in a nutshell. But honestly, that just raises other questions. And one of those questions is why? Forgiveness, Lord, forgiveness is hard, so why should I forgive like that? And to answer that unspoken question, Jesus turned to a parable. So let's explore now the meaning of the parable, beginning in verse 23. The meaning of the parable. Please listen as I read it aloud. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had 
and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So very common practice in that day, and it was common for a king to audit his books and to see if his stewards were being faithful. Imagine the king's surprise when he discovered one of his stewards owed him 10,000 talents. In fact, some have suggested he had to probably embezzle to get that kind of debt. You see, a talent was a measure of weight between 60 and 80 pounds. In this case, a measure of money. One talent was the equivalent of an average man's wages for 20 years. So in today's money, this man owed the king the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars. I'm going to use 20 million for the sake of comparison this morning. The king forgave his servant because he had compassion on him and and on his children, his family. But the reality is there was no way that that servant could ever repay even a small percentage of what he owed the king. Now, I think the whole story is essentially wrapped up in verse 27, or at least the first part of the story. So notice verse 27. First, notice the word compassion or pity. The ESV translates this word pity. Literally, it means to be moved with compassion. The second thing I want you to notice is the word released. That is an essential element of forgiveness. In fact, Charles Stanley defines forgiveness this way. Forgiveness is the act of setting someone free or releasing them from an obligation to you that is a result of a wrong done against you. The third thing to notice in verse 27 is that he forgave him all his debt. And what a perfect analogy this is for the Father's forgiveness of us as sinners, right? Because unless we can clearly see how much God forgives us, it's a debt that we could never hope to repay. Unless we grasp that, we could never forgive one another. And that's the point. We are to live out here on earth what God has done for us in heaven. We are to forgive others without limit. Remember the words of Jesus when he taught his disciples to pray? The Lord's Prayer includes these words, Forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. They're linked together. They're links in the same chain. We cannot truly forgive someone else until we see how it is linked to how God has forgiven us. So I think I've shared this story before, I'm not sure. But there were two churches of differing denominations struggling in the same town. Both of them were about to close the doors. They were about to go out of existence. And it dawned on one of them that they'd be stronger, that they could continue to be churches if they joined hands and met in one building that they could continue ministry if they did that. The problem was they were a little too petty to pull that off because they couldn't decide how they were going to recite the Lord's Prayer. One group insisted on saying, forgive us our trespasses. The other group insisted on saying, forgive us our debts. And neither was willing to change. So they didn't merge. 
And the local newspaper reported the story like this. One church went back to its trespasses and the other returned to its debts. <laughs> Beloved, in order to forgive, we cannot, we cannot be petty. We have to be like God. The most magnanimous debt that will ever be paid has been paid. And that's the point of this parable. God has done the most, the maximum. And now he says, in the same way, you forgive each other. Watch now as the story unfolds, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow, his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. That sound a little familiar? Have you heard something like that before? Well, it should. Because that is an instant replay of verse 26. And by the way, the second servant owed his fellow servant a very, very small amount by comparison. 100 denarii is the equivalent of about 100 days wages. So he'd been forgiven a debt of something like $20 million. But he was hard-hearted over a debt of just thousands of dollars. And then look at verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. You see that? A man pleads with him for mercy, just as the servant had done, just as he had done a few moments before with his king, but he was unwilling. He refused to forgive it. And instead, he throws the other man into debtor's prison until he pays his debt. Notice that word refused. Literally, that word means not willing. It wasn't that it was impossible to forgive. It's simply that he was unwilling to do so. No forgiveness is impossible. A lot of it is unwillingness. It's a matter of our will. Well, the other members of the king's staff watch all this. Their hearts broke. The unforgiving servant was being evil. He was being petty. And they had to tell the king about it. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and, report, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? It's a rough story. But Jesus wasn't done telling it yet. In fact, the key part of the story is still coming. What is the connection between unforgiveness and suffering? Jesus tells us clearly. Look at verse 34. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. When I read that book and those words began to sink in, I was surprised. That's just a little startling. And I was especially surprised that I had not recognized that before. 
What is the second motivation Jesus gives us here to forgive? He spells it out very clearly. Our Lord teaches that God will deliver us over to suffering if we do not forgive others from our hearts. Most people harboring unforgiveness know they should forgive those who have harmed them, but they're simply unwilling to do so. But what if they understood what Jesus said here? Wouldn't it make them run to forgive? Let me summarize the teaching of Jesus' parable like this. A couple of things. Number one, let me summarize with a question and answer. First, why should I forgive without limit? And Jesus gives two answers, two reasons. The first one, the first answer is because of how God has forgiven me. I should forgive without limit because that's how God forgave me. All right? To do anything less is hypocritical. And that's what I've normally emphasized in teaching through this parable. Okay? I think we get that part. We understand that part. But there's a second reason that Jesus mentions here. We're to forgive without limit because otherwise I bring torment upon myself. I bring torment upon myself. We're going to spend a little more time on that reason because for some this might be a new thought. You may need just a little time to sort of process it as I did. Did you notice the word torturers in verse 34? The ESV translates this word jailers, but I think that that's an unfortunate choice of words. It's a most unusual word in the Bible. Look again at verse 34. This is the New American Standard translation. He handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Friend, this is the part of the book that I've wrestled with over the past year. Is that really true? Does God really do that? Is that how other scholars that I respect translate it? Is that verified by other scripture passages? And as I wrestled with that, I came to the conclusion that the answer is yes. I believe that is true, and that's what Jesus was teaching. Here are some of the commentators I checked and who agree with this view. Ray Stedman, John MacArthur, Dwight Pentecost, Chuck Swindoll, D.A. Carson, and Warren Wearsby, to mention a few that I checked. So let's look at the word itself, that word translated torturers or jailers. It's the Greek word basanizo, and the meaning of it is to cause another person distress or suffering. Distress and suffering. But it's translated different ways in different contexts in the New Testament. First, it can refer to physical suffering as in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8 says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Suffering is the word, basanizo. So it can refer to physical suffering and affliction. Listen, not all, not all physical ailment has a direct spiritual cause. But I believe that many people do suffer affliction because of unforgiveness. Number two, this word basanizo can also refer to emotional suffering, as in 2 Peter 2. Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented, there's the word, tormented, his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So according to Peter, 
Every day Lot's soul was tormented because of living amidst this godly culture, this godly place he lived. So likewise, some of the discomfort associated with unforgiveness is an emotional distress. So there's physical suffering, there's emotional torment. Third, the word basanizo is used in Revelation 12.2 in reference to childbirth. She was pregnant and was carrying out, crying out in birth pains and the agony, there's the word agony, of giving birth. So in this case, the word describes the wrenching pain that a woman experiences in childbirth. And although giving birth to a child isn't from unforgiveness, the pain isn't from unforgiveness, I think what this reveals is how this word is used and the level of suffering it can connote. Amen, ladies? <laughs> Number four, in Greek literature outside of Scripture, that word basanizo is used to describe the torment of putting someone on a rack and stretching them to their death. So if you put all of that together, the different uses of this word, you come up with the picture of pain, suffering, and torment. It can be physical or it can be emotional. And to be very clear, again, not all suffering is a consequence of unforgiveness. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the Bible is clear. Sometimes it can be. Ray Stedman wrote this. This is a marvelously expressive phrase to describe what happens when we don't forgive another. It is an accurate description of gnawing resentment and bitterness, the awful gall of hate or envy. It is a terrible feeling, and we cannot escape it. Every time we think of them, we feel within the acid of resentment and hate, eating away at our peace and calm. Said so well. And beloved, I believe that's what Jesus had in mind when he spoke of being handed over to the torturers. So let me summarize a few key thoughts about it like this. Number one, there are always, always consequences to unforgiveness. If we think that unforgiveness can just sort of be suppressed and pushed down and stuffed or hidden away without effect, we are terribly wrong. When we fail to forgive, God takes away the protection of his peace in our hearts. He allows discipline to bring us to obedience and to true forgiveness. He does this because he loves us. And he wants our good more than he wants our comfort. Well, some people resist the idea of God making this link between the sin of unforgiveness and our suffering. So understand, secondly, this is an issue of discipline, not of eternal punishment. This is an issue of discipline. Jesus is teaching us that suffering arises in our lives from broken relationships. And he allows this to motivate and train us to be like him, to be a forgiver. In the parable, Jesus made this point clear. When a person does not forgive, the father sentences him to, forgive, or to discipline. The person will suffer until they decide to forgive. 
Listen to these words from Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? According to this passage, what is the ultimate reason for God's discipline of us as his children? It's a hard teaching, but God has our good in mind. He loves us so much that he won't let us get by with the sin of unforgiveness. But there's also good news as well. And the good news is that you are in control of how long you have to endure this kind of suffering. Number three is this. God has provided the path of escape, the path of escape to suffering. So the choice to be disciplined is ours to make. God doesn't want us living in resentment and bitterness. He's eagerly waiting to grant us complete freedom from the torment that goes along with unforgiveness. He deeply desires us to forgive and experience the peace that he wants us to know. And the choice to be disciplined or not disciplined is ours to make. Friend, that's a radical truth. Forgive others so you won't have to undergo painful discipline. Forgive others and you will live in God's freedom and peace. Again, let me reiterate that not all suffering, not all suffering is a consequence of the sin of unforgiveness. But sometimes, sometimes there is a clear connection. To illustrate that, I want to read an email that Bruce shared in his book. I think this illustrates very well. Dear Bruce, I was thinking about our recent meeting at Denny's. I met with you to tell you how I had prayed, fasted, and even taught Bible studies, but still did not understand why God was not answering my prayers about my daughter, Christy. I was so frustrated I had done everything any follower of Jesus could to fix our relationship, but it grew worse, and her rebellion against God and me just increased. When you asked me if I had been unforgiving and rebellious against my parents, I had to answer yes. But I was still offended when you told me to get on a plane the next day, go see my mother, and repent of my rebellion that was now influencing my daughter. To be honest, I wish that I had never opened myself up to you. The only conclusion, or the only consolation I had was that look on your face, which seemed to say, I can't believe I just told her to do that. Anyway, I was upset, but open. Nothing else had worked, and I was desperate. I was ready to stop the pain and exhausting standoffs, so I followed your advice. I wrote down the ways my mother had hurt me, and I followed the steps needed to prepare my heart to forgive her and ask her to forgive me. I bought a ticket and went to see my mother. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't rough, but I'd had enough of the torment. As we sat across from each other, peering into each other's eyes, I explained why I was there. I took responsibility first and apologized for how rebellious I had been toward her. I asked her to forgive me for every wound I had inflicted on her. 
I said that I loved her and that I forgave her from my heart for every way she had ever wounded me. And the freedom and peace I experienced at the moment was absolutely heavenly. I was set free. I felt a lead weight fall from my heart. It freed me to go home and ask my daughter for forgiveness. For the first time, I was able to truly release her to Jesus. Well, things turned out beautifully, something that only the Lord could do. On my daughter's wedding day, she called me into her room. Mom, she said, I want to repent and ask your forgiveness for my rebellion. I was shocked. She was doing the same thing to me that I did to my mother. When she finished asking me to forgive her, she knelt before me and asked me to bless her. It was a glorious day. Bruce, thank you for your obedience to confront my heart of unforgiveness. Because you did so, a generational cycle was broken. Many years of possible turmoil and suffering were averted. Finally, let's talk about the application of this parable. And there's a couple of things that stand out in my mind as worth remembering. First, focus primarily on God's forgiveness of you. Because if you can't do that, it's not worth going any farther. Only as we see our own sinfulness and the profound love and forgiveness God has extended to us can we, in turn, forgive others. They go together. So first and primarily, focus on God's forgiveness for you. And then second, deal directly and honestly with any resentment that you have toward others. And to do that, I want to consider a few hard questions. Number one, is there somebody that you need to forgive today? Number two, is there somebody that you need to ask forgiveness from today? And third, are you dealing with any resentment toward God for something that he has allowed in your life? And by the way, I want to commend this book to you for further study if you are interested. It's called The Freedom Factor by Bruce Wilkinson. It has a Bible study, a small group study that goes along with it. It's called 70 Times 7, Finding Peace by Forgiving Others and Yourself. In fact, we have a small group that is doing a pilot study of this book and video right now. And I heard just this week that they are very, very excited about the uh, results, how, how good this study is. So if you happen to be interested at all in doing this study yourself, you might even just write that down on your communication card today. I can't promise anything, but we'll, if there's enough interest, we'll see if uh, someone doesn't come forward that wants to lead that. Well, at this time, we're going to watch a video. It's a uh, video by Matthew West, songwriter Matthew West, that he made to explain the origin of one of his songs, a song called Forgiven. This story explains how this song came to be, so let's watch that at this time. This one story in particular has had a profound impact on me. It's about a woman who did the impossible, and it made me ask myself, if I could do the same. Renee had four kids. Two of her daughters were twins. 
Megan was coming home from the beach one night with her best friend when their car was struck by a drunk driver named Eric, a 24-year-old kid. Megan lost her life. Eric killed both girls that were in the car. Renee lost her daughter in an instant. Megan is um, a very joyful child and had a heart of gold, beautiful, loved people, loved her family, um, just a joy of my life. And um, when she was 20 years old, on May 11th, 2002, uh, my sister-in-law came to the door to tell me that um, Megan had been in a car accident and she didn't make it. You know, my heart was so broken and I looked at her and said, no, you're kidding, and you know, still looking for her to tell me that, that she's, this is not really true, that Megan wasn't coming back home. Next thing she knows, she finds herself in a courtroom watching this young man, this 24-year-old man, get sentenced to 22 years in prison. After Renee lost her daughter, she said she found herself in the darkest place she'd ever been. This guy Eric was behind bars, but she said she felt like the prisoner. Why? Because she had all this bitterness and hatred built up towards that young man. And so, she reached out and did the impossible. She reached out to Eric in prison and said, I forgive you. The ripple effects of that act of forgiveness are still being felt today. That young man's life was absolutely changed because this woman forgave him. He said, I can't even forgive myself, and she forgave me. One by one, all of Renee's family members followed her lead, and they reached out and expressed forgiveness to Eric. So much so that now they describe Eric as part of their family, like a son to Renee. The story doesn't stop there, though. Renee went to the courts along with her family, and she was able to have Eric's sentence cut in half from 22 years to 11 years. He told me that day, the, the day of the hearing, that it didn't matter at this point. He said, you know, if, if the judge does not grant this for me, I want you to know that I am so grateful that you are willing to do this. And um, he said, and I will be okay. He said, I'll, I'll be fine. But I'm just, I, he was blown away by the fact that we were willing to go before the judge and, and you know, plead for him to not have to be there for 22 years. I was more than angry at Eric. I had so much rage inside of me, and yet the moment that I was able to look Eric in his eyes and tell him that I forgive him, you know, that was a moment that healing began for both of us. A judge and a jury telling you that it's okay to hold a grudge, you know, that's what the world says. It's okay for you to feel that way, which it is, but yet those feelings, they're inside of you eating away at you, and, and you don't want to live your life that way. There are people who are not going to ever have someone say to them, I'm sorry for what I did, or I take responsibility for what I did, and you still have to forgive if you want to heal. Do you notice the chorus of that song was in the form of a prayer? I think that's because forgiveness is so hard for us to do. Show me how to love the unlovable. Show me how, Lord, to reach the unreachable. Help me now to do the impossible. Let's talk about some next steps for our own lives today. Number one is, I will forgive. Is there somebody that you have been holding on to a grudge toward? Beloved, you need to let go of that. That's what God says. It will weigh you down. It will eat you up. Jesus is waiting to help you forgive them so you can be set free. Next step two is I will ask forgiveness from. 
Is there somebody that you need to go to and ask them to forgive you? Maybe you need to get on an airplane tomorrow or buy an airplane ticket this week. Whatever it takes, say to them, I'm humbling myself. I'm sorry for what I did to you. Will you please forgive me? And finally, have you ever really let it sink in, the message of God's forgiveness for you? What he has done for you and for me by sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sin. Just as Renee stood before that judge seeking mercy for the young man, I'm reminded that someone has done that for you and someone has done that for me. And his name is Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why would he do that? So that we can discover the healing and the victory, the power and the freedom of forgiveness. But you don't discover that until you make the decision to put your faith in Christ and receive his gift of forgiveness. And that's why next step three is I will receive God's complete forgiveness in Christ today. As we close in prayer, I want to give you an opportunity to do that in case you've never done so. Would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. And friend, if you've never trusted Christ and you want to today, just say something like this silently. Just pray silently in your heart of hearts. Father, I want your forgiveness. I confess I've sinned against you. I can't earn your forgiveness, but I can receive it as a gift. I put my faith in Jesus alone, his death and resurrection to forgive me. And I thank you for that gift today. Father, we confess it is so hard to forgive at times. At times it seems impossible to let go of the pain and the hurt. And so we ask that you would be the Lord of this area of our lives. We confess we need your help. Big offenses, maybe even little offenses that get piled up over time. Lord, we repent of our unforgiveness. And we ask you would help us to grasp afresh how much you have forgiven us. And then fill us with your mercy and your compassion toward those who have offended us. Help us also to uh, go to anyone that we have offended and ask for forgiveness and reconciliation. We need your help, Lord. And we're so thankful that you are ready and willing to give it. We ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. God bless you.